Welcome once again to the Johnny Fallon podcast election series, looking back at all of the elections from 1977 to the modern uh, election of 2020. We're looking at all of the big issues, characters, figures that have shaped and made Irish politics what it is today. And this week, we're going back to 1997 as we enter what could be considered the very modern age of election. Elections, and we're going to look at some of the big issues, of course, that uh, had happened. Now, the last couple of weeks, we have taken a big look at the events of the early to mid 90s, which were a complete roller coaster. Would it be different for 1997? And we're getting some sense now of just how the country had evolved politically into what we see before us today. So, Sit back and relax as we take another journey through Ireland's elections and all of the drama that went with 1997. So as we head back into this election, it's worth taking stock a little bit of of where we've come from. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at all of the elections and just what they meant. And there's an opportune time because as we go back to uh, 1997 now, uh, if we cast our minds back exactly 20 years previous to where our podcast started on 1977, and we've seen quite a dramatic shift in politics at that point. So we've seen how Fianna Fáil uh, had came to power in 77. We've seen the drama of that. We've seen how economic debate was being shaped at that point. We've seen all the ups and downs throughout the early 80s as they struggled to get to, to grips with things economically, as politically uh, parties were, were in great flux and time of big personalities. We've gone through the the, the 80s and when parties finally do manage in the late 80s to get a handle on things, to act responsibly across Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil and change how they do things. We've seen the birth of something very modern in Ireland uh, as it began to shift, as power began to ebb away perhaps from the big two parties uh, by the late 80s, as Labour started to make a break, as, as we head into a real multi-party state uh, by the late 80s. Um, and we've begun to see the birth of this very modern nation in the early 90s, socially great change beginning to happen, economically huge change beginning to happen, something dramatic about a very different Ireland suddenly being born in in those early 90s. Right throughout the drama that went with that politics, the uh, lack of trust that was, was very much evident. And then we're coming up now to a time when I suppose most people will recognise the names and people, no matter no matter what age group you're in, these names are going to be familiar to you now as you head into 1997 and uh, beyond and what, what happened. It's worth it just pausing to take all that into account because Ireland by 1997 has changed dramatically over the previous 20 years and that's changed dramatically in its politics and in uh, its social outlook Uh, and that's going to be a a big part of uh, to play in 1997. It's also going to look a little bit here at how some of the stuff that had been going on uh, in the 70s and 80s 
that was poisoning politics but was happening in secret begins of course over those years uh, to come out into the open of talking about the tribunals, the donations but still not maybe perhaps being fully understood by 1997 um, and it all combines to give us a sense of a, a, a an election that was going to and could have the potential to change so much of Irish politics uh, or was perceived to be about to do that, offer a new era, a new time, a new, a new stepping forward. So that's a, a general overview of a lot of time has passed, but people are still, I mean, this is, it's only 20 years since uh, the 77 election, so it's very much a living memory thing for the people voting uh, in 1997. Uh, and of course, it was Fianna Fáil had this thing going into 1997 because they'd had a big win in 77. They'd had a big win in 87 and they were going for a big win again in 97. That was their their thinking on, on just these small patterns that they, they felt developed. Now, it's worth just considering what has happened as well uh, here for, for other parties coming into this because Fine Gael, um have come to power uh, under John Bruton uh, in the most dramatic circumstances that we covered in the last podcast. They've come to power um, with the collapse of the, the Fianna Fáil Labour coalition, but there's no election. So... We covered it in detail in the last podcast, what happened there. But we do find that suddenly John Bruton arrives in as Taoiseach, saves his career somewhat in doing it uh, and, and managing to get uh, into to, to the role of Taoiseach. Just interesting to take the words of, of John Bruton at this point because it was something that he almost didn't see coming uh, and then it happened out of nowhere and it all happened uh, quite fast. And in uh, Katie Hannan's book, um, The Naked Politician, John Bruton talks about this and what it was like coming to power at that time and just how little he actually remembers of, of the details of getting in there because of the way it happened. Uh, and he says, quote, John Bruton, the only party leader to become Taoiseach without a general election, remembers the moment of his surprise elevation as astonishing. He swears he has already forgotten much of the detail of the negotiations that tacked together a new coalition arrangement that brought him to power in unique circumstances in 1994. I think I was leaving Leinster House that night. I had a pretty good idea. Pontius de Rossa, the then leader of Democratic Left Party, was driving out ahead of me in his little Fiat, and I said to myself, that man has my future in his hands. His trademark laughter gushes forth at the memory of it all. Ah, was great. It was terrific. He can't remember who called him to seal the deal, and neither can he remember who he called first to relay the good news. I don't remember any of that. It's all gone out of my head. Honestly, you see so much you had you see you had so much to do that day, you just had to get on with it and select a government. Coming just months after an attempted coup, he remarks dryly of his task of picking a cabinet that some of my colleagues had made it easy for me by ruling themselves out a few months earlier. I had only a limited number of positions, I think, of all the positions, and this would be normal for Tishi and PMs, four-fifths of them would suggest themselves and be obvious, and the last two or three possessions you'd have to have a few calls to make. You have to look at a number of considerations, obviously ability, then geography, and loyalty. 
Each one is valid in its own way. You can't reward disloyalty. You can't ignore geography. And you certainly won't have a good government if you ignore ability. I would have done lists. I would have been doing those lists for a few days before. In fact, I have them. Lists of name and places in government. Unquote. You get a sense from, from that even of just how dramatic perhaps his coming to power was that he doesn't even recall some of the, the small details but they sense that Labour and Democratic left, he had just come back from a coup. He had, he, Fine Gael were getting tired of John Bruton uh, at the time when suddenly he gets power and boom, he's Taoiseach. Uh, and, and the drama of that for him was uh, astonishing too. And it's not surprising perhaps therefore that some of the details of it, he can't even recall at this stage. But Fine Gael had come to power um, and this was to be anew. You are going to get a couple of years here where Fianna Fáil are in absolute shock because not only has is it Reynolds as, as leader is, is now gone um, and they, they have to face that. They had hoped to get um, a deal with Labour, but Labour then say, look, we know that the other ministers knew about the case before and they were party to all this. So Labour doesn't win with them, gets a better deal as they see it with Democratic left and um, Fine Gael. And Fianna Fáil are in some sense a shock. It takes them quite a while to almost recover from it because they're struggling at their side to even understand how did this happen? How did it all just go south completely? And we haven't even had an election and we're out of government, you know, what's going on here? It's, it's, it's one of those scenes that I think it's, it's dramatic for simply the fact that the, the psychological impact this has politically on, on everybody. But that's the context of, of that change. And, and that comes in of Labour have hoped that their fortunes, having gone into government with Fianna Fáil, look, there was this sense that suddenly their poll numbers were, were, were collapsing. Uh, and some believed, oh, it's because you went in with Fianna Fáil uh, that you went in. I'm not a big buyer into that theory of Labour were punished because they went in with Fianna Fáil. There were for some, yes. Labour were punished because they went into government, full stop. It was irrespective of who they went in with because they had gone in in 92 with this overwhelming sense of, you know revolution it was going to change everyone we're going on a whole new government doesn't change that quick and although labor were actually getting a lot of their program for government through although they were changing a lot of things it wasn't as dramatic maybe as some people hoped and therefore people if it comes in and one big unexpected tide you go into government it tends to go out uh, just as easily because people don't get the sense of urgency that they felt during the election that it was all going to change yes the, the adrenaline rush of voting for the new party and, and all that goes with it suddenly the new party's in government and it's all a bit dull boring and there are problems and there'll always be a crisis and there'll always be negative things in government so when you've gone in on the back of a really big increase it's likely that some of that's going to ebb away and that's what Labour were suffering from um, but there, they had, and there was a, a an idea within the party, maybe if we got out from Fianna Fáil and we got in with Fianna Gael, if that's what people wanted, and there was a theory that it was, our fortunes will be restored. That wasn't going to happen. Um, and, and, and the fortunes were still, there was going to be a struggle there to get those fortunes back on, online. 
and we're going to see in this election. Um, you had this government that hadn't even, I suppose, been possible after a general election between these these three parties. Um, but because of the results, as we described in the podcasting and by-elections, Democratic left had got these extra seats. Finnegan got an extra seat. Now it was possible to have it. Um, and it was an interesting experiment here. It was an interesting because people felt, well, look, you know, maybe the left have a, a, a slight benefit here uh, in this with the weight of numbers behind them. Uh, and that was the mood, I suppose, that they came to power in. Could they get a stronger government out of this? Would it be now a better government? And I suppose for Labour, they're looking at John Bruton and thinking, well, maybe John Bruton's learned a lesson by... by, by the fact that we didn't go in with him in 92, the fact that we've kind of humbled him a bit, he's been under pressure. Maybe he'll be grateful and he'll respect people. And you do get a sense when um, Bruton's saying there that he's looking at Prunchies de Rossa driving out ahead of him in his feet and saying, that man has my future in his hands. That Bruton, this wealthy, strong, traditional Fine Gael, uh, politician, who has all the attributes you expect, um, well-educated, going to the right schools, doing the right things, always has known the right people, he's in there. He's what you expect uh, traditionally when you look at politicians and people and you say they're bred for high office. That's Bruton came to come into all that. And there he is looking down. It's a great thing, I suppose, maybe about democracy that you looked at even in that scenario. There he is looking at it thinking his future is dependent on this Pontius de Rossa, who's very different backgrounds, very different um, uh, expectations perhaps from his side, but he can make or break John Bruton's entire career at that point. And that's that's fascinating in itself. But I think at this point, you get a sense that the government was coming in and trying to do things. And they had some quite a lot uh, indeed of success as they as they approached government over the following number of years. Now, you could argue that they were a little bit lucky, uh, and many people have, and that, as we've seen in the podcast, a lot of things have been happening economically in getting Ireland back, and there was money now to be spent. Um, not a lot of money. Um, there's, this wasn't far from the boom yet. Um, unemployment was beginning to show signs that, that Ireland was, was going to reduce their unemployment. Economic growth was certainly beginning to, 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 to you know, show these signs of dramatic uh, change. There was the billions from Europe that still had to be spent in, in changing the, the Irish economy. Um, and of course, socially, all the change that had come with it as well. So you could argue that, um, and, and it has been argued as political charges and debates go, that they were lucky. But at the same time, they had to manage that. Lots of governments are lucky. Subsequent governments after um, the Rainbow Coalition, as it was called, would come to power and be lucky uh, in timing and not handle it as well. Uh, but it is interesting because they faced a number of challenges too. There was the ongoing peace process, which of course was one of the big things that was lurking out there. How would the peace process handle this this change of government? Because it had all been delicately poised. You'd got this ceasefire in Northern Ireland. This was major for uh, Ireland as a whole. This, this dramatic shift. Um, and again, it's hard for people to understand maybe today if you weren't didn't experience what was Northern Ireland conflict 
just how dramatic getting that ceasefire was. And of course, there were to be problems because it was got a lot on trust and, and personal relationships. And a lot of that was to change because over the, we've now got Reynolds gone and that did damage uh, to a certain degree. It wasn't fatal by any stretch of the imagination, but it did make people unsure. They had done a certain deal with one guy and now that guy was gone and there was a sense of that. Spring did bring great continuity to it though and that was important. On the UK side, of course, not wouldn't be too long till John Major too would be gone, um, and and a new party in in Labour coming to force there with Tony Blair again in a very changed uh, environment. All of that began to put pressure on the peace process, so it was understandable that there would be hiccups and bumps on the road, uh, along the way, and and of course John Rutten was coming to power with this Rainbow Coalition with a lot of pressure to prove that they could keep that going, uh, and that wasn't going to be easy. Uh, and I am just going to read a a, a quick piece from from a book uh, I wrote a number of years ago, Dynasties, uh, Irish Political Families, which looked at Bruton, just because there's a summary here of, of just some of the things that were going on for this government. Uh, because I don't have time to go back over all of the economic and each episode, but there were a number of small things happening and good pol- political uh, governance that were happening and challenges they were facing. So, quote, Luck may have been on their side, but they were far from reckless and did much to help in the development of economic growth at the time. This period, with Bruton as Taoiseach and Rory Quinn as finance minister, did much to put to rest the old ghosts that had haunted Fine Gael and Labour from the 80s over their handling of economic issues. Bruton deserves much credit for this change. Bruton also excelled on the international stage, overseeing Ireland's presidency of the EU in 1996 and was one of the few figures to have addressed a joint session of the United States Congress. The government was also responsible for one of the most important drives against organised crime in Ireland. The murder of journalist Veronica Guerin had caused outrage in the country and the government was quick to act. The establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau was one of the most effective weapons the state has ever introduced and as a lasting testimony to strong action. It was not all plain sailing. Throughout his tenure, Bruton still suffered from a sometimes unfair accusation that he was somehow anti-nationalist or was too eager to appease unionists. Bruton had taken many strong stands on behalf of nationalism, but he abhorred the IRA, with good reason, and his distrust soured relations. The collapse of the IRA ceasefire was seen as clear evidence of the Republican movement's loss of faith. Bruton did himself no favours in this regard when Prince Charles became the first member of the royal family to visit Ireland since independence. Bruton, in his speech, was at pains to establish this as a seminal moment in Irish history and the high point of his career. The media and public viewed the speech negatively and as, quote, embarrassingly effusive, according to the Times. Bruton stood over his assertions, but there is little doubt that most Irish people found his treatment of Prince Charles to be too phoning and subservient, unquote. Now... That just gives you a sense of the, the, the environment in which this new Rainbow Coalition was doing. Because they continued on with a lot of good everyday work here. But against the backdrop then of some of the big issues, they were getting a bit of flack. Because the breakdown of the IRA ceasefire does impact them negatively. And there is a sense, at least out there, pro- of course being propagated by, by Fianna Fáil in particular, that only they could handle the peace process um, and, and that they were required for this national question. 
Um, Fine Gael, John Bruton had come in and to be fair, he was trying something of a different strategy where he had looked at this and felt that there'd been this pan-nationalist front that Reynolds had been very strong on um, and that maybe, you know, reaching out to unionists was required. It was a difficult strategy, though, because as soon as you did that, you did get into these all too easy accusations of, look, Bruton's just pro-unionist, typical. Like the old thing of calling Fine Gael, you know, West Brits and that kind of stuff was being hurled back at him from nationalist side. And on the other side, you unionists who were dubious about this. They, they could almost deal with the, the idea of someone saying, I'm a nationalist, I'm Irish, and this is what I want, and we're, we have this over and back with each other. The idea of someone reaching out to them and doing that, they were, they were sometimes unsure of how to take that or how to accept it. That was a, a, a challenge for them. So Bruton and, and the, the government, they have a lot of big issues in the background that, that sometimes can be seen as, as, as negative at that time. But, you know, the economy goes on and they handle the economy well. Rory Quinn goes in as Minister for Finance and this is the first Labour Minister for Finance. And again in that, he's seen as doing a really good job. There's nothing dramatic in what he does. There's no wild spending here, although it's the first time governments start to feel they can increase things in welfare. They can increase some spending in areas. The, the, the money is beginning to eke out. But there's nothing wild about the spending here. There's nothing crazy about it. The only thing that we, you, you might economically begin to look at here is they, they, they've had these series in Ireland of, of partnership. And you remember in some of the earlier podcasts, we talked a lot about the, these difficult economic circumstances we'd come from. One of the reasons they get out of this in, in after 87 was the formation of um, you know, partnership agreements between unions and, and wage restraint and all of that. They're getting more difficult, though, each time. Like the first one, they get in, it does really well. The second one actually was, was said by, by Albert Reynolds, was Minister of Finance, and he actually felt that in the second one, he had gone too far and had begun to allow the partnership process go a little bit off the rails. He signed off on it, he went with it, but he said he was having doubts at that. He wouldn't have signed off on it had he been Taoiseach at the opening of the second one, um, that there were too many risks uh, imposed. Rory Quinn as Minister for Finance when they, 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 they do the next partnership agreement and some economic commentators feel you can see in that again the government gets held up and, and there is a little bit of being forced into perhaps a little bit of spending that was certainly they were eager to get a deal they needed a new partnership deal in it but within that within some of the, the, the things that are happening in public sector within wage restraint you can see where its partnership process is beginning to go off the rails and, and, and a decade later it's going to keep in that direction till it becomes a, a useless for all sides. Nobody gets what they want out of it. But again, you see a difficult negotiation there and that might be the only economic criticism that, that will be levelled at that point. But other than that, you know, these guys have every reason to think they've got a decent government here. Um, you know, it's 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 uh, it's a reasonable assertion. They know that they have had uh all of the the flack um that that Fianna Fáil has taken, and they know they can now make this government work, and that makes it seem like you know what this is what you get 
if you get parties, you've you've had this roller coaster with Fianna Fáil. You've had Fianna Fáil now. They can't work with the PDs. They can't work with Labour. Can't work with anybody. Here we show you how government can work when everybody absolutely gets along, um, and that seems to be a a, a quite reasonable um assumption. One that people you would think would perhaps like after all the drama that they've been through, um. And and it frames a little bit of the thinking of the parties. So we also have some other changes that begin to kick in here. Because for the Rainbow Coalition, they struggle at times then to demonstrate. And, and they're looking across at, at, at a very different uh, approach from Fianna Fáil. They know Fianna Fáil is now becoming, once Fianna Fáil gets over its initial panic, one of the things that happens, of course, when Fianna Fáil had to select its new leader after Reynolds goes, is they've selected Bertie Ahern. There was a moment where Maura Gagan Quinn, Albert Reynolds' chosen uh, successor, um, was going to run for leadership, but she pulls out. Bertie Ahern is pretty much just accepted uh, unanimously nearly as, as as a leader of the party. Uh, they they want him. He's he's seen as conciliatory and different. He's going to be a very different guy for this Rainbow Coalition to try and outmaneuver. So they're aware of that, but, you know, perhaps not too scared of what that might mean for them. Um, the other thing that they know uh, going in as they approach this election is they can show they've they've done a lot of things that they wanted to in terms of they've shown the government can work and there was this government didn't collapse and one of the accusations all the time was you put three or four parties in government how could that last it'll all collapse and it'll all go crazy and you can't let democratic left into government was one other accusation at the time they're a bit mad they're in the hard left all of that kind of and this shows number one you can have multi-party coalitions and they don't have to collapse uh, number two, you can have parties in government and they will work through and it, the sky's not going to fall in uh, by smaller parties or more um, dramatic political opinions coming in. Nothing much changes, only a little bit round the edges because people can't go dramatically wild in government in a, a, a democratic situation. And finally, of course, they were trying to prove that there was a real alternative, a long-term alternative. And these guys wanted to be re-elected. So as they approach 97, they're looking at this and saying, we want to ensure that people see an alternative government here, this government, coming back. Um, now, Labour, uh, on the other hand, had all kinds of difficulties because the opinion polls are not changing for them. It is going to be a rough election, and they know it, but they're trying to limit the amount of damage that's going to happen here. And it's a rough election because people are kind of looking at it and saying, look, things haven't changed to the drama we, we believed it would. You've done good stuff. You've got in. They have been reforming. But, you know, a lot of the social issues, decriminalisation, homosexuality, divorce referendums, all of that, it, it's not the stuff people are feeling in their pocket by 97. It's not the stuff that people just aren't feeling the buzz from this government. They're not feeling <clears throat> that Labour has dramatically changed everything. And, of course, look, the... You get vote win votes easy as they did in ninety two, you're gonna to struggle to retain them. So they're fighting against all that, but they're looking at the poll numbers, and the poll numbers are not exactly uh, enticing for an election. 
Now, one of the other things that happens over this period that we've got to touch on is the fact that news begins to eke out. News about things like corruption in politics. And one of the things that hits this government and hits the Rainbow Coalition is that one of the most dynamic ministers is a guy called Michael Lowry. And Michael Lowry is a senior minister. He's seen as tough street fighter type. He's well liked within Fine Gael because from the personality cult side, this is one of the guys you really think could mix it up with Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil have had this almost monopoly on these colourful, strong, charismatic figures who are great talkers, speakers, you know, they they great at the old street fighting of politics. Lowry comes from that mould, but he's Fine Gael through and through. He's not the old, what they might see as sometimes stodgy Fine Gael, um, reserved and doesn't get down and dirty. Oh, he can get down and dirty and he can do it. And he, he you know, it's attractive for a party too. We've got one of those guys, one of those charismatic kind of guys who make stuff happen. Yeah. And, and Lowry is up there, sometimes talked about as potentially a leader of Fine Gael at some point because of, of just how well he's liked and how, how well he's, he comes across. Uh, and he seems to be a fearless political figure uh, but of course scandal ensues which all comes down to uh, issues with Dunn stores you know Dunn stores the biggest supermarket chain in Ireland and Ben Dunn uh, was head of that uh, as as uh, inherits this Dunn stores empire he's the guy at the top of it be very young very wealthy and you know a small incident uh, to to everybody in Ireland at the time was that Ben Dunn uh, has found a threatening to jump out of a window of a, an apartment in, in in the USA he had a lot of drugs there were girls involved all this kind of stuff and it just seemed bizarre millionaire you know uh, rich kid with the world at his feet you know his gone a bit mad and everybody's kind of thinking geez you know that's that's sad to see but what it does that incident what nobody realized politically at the time was was going to change Irish politics forever because Ben Dunn loses control of the Dunn stores empire um, as other members of the family decide look we can't leave him at the head of it we have to change this and when they take over they go through the books and they start finding very odd payments. Um, one of these leads back, of course, to Michael Lowry, uh, current minister. And this story breaks. And within a few weeks, Lowry has to resign as minister. Um, and he's going to defend himself and he's going to go through the tribunals. And we're not going to spend ages going through all of the details of what it was because it could be here for the next 10 years doing it. But Lowry has to resign. And that's a big blow to this government because now immediately it looks like hold on they're not whiter than snow you know the the these were saying were pure and were different Fianna Fáil actually they look pretty much the same in, in in the way they're going on here but just as Fianna Fáil were about to get cocky and about to believe that you know this is it this is great you know not only you know is is the government under pressure and Fianna Fáil is kind of getting its vibe back again Fianna Fáil are going to discover this is going to come back and bite them too. Because only a short time after, rumours begin to come out that there's also payments 
of one million to a former Fianna Fáil minister. Now, I remember at the time when that rumour broke and it was, you know, suddenly on the paper saying, um, for legal reasons, they're being very careful about what they're saying, but they're saying that there are rumours out that there is also a payment of over one million to a former Fianna Fáil minister. And I remember looking at it and everyone was, oh my God, you know, who's a former minister? Um, who could it be? And I remember my own father turning around to me and saying, no doubt about who it is. He said, it's Charlie. And I said, well, it could be, but there's a few that maybe... And he said, no, with a million, that's Charlie. He's the only one who would be, you know, using... He threw in some expletives. Uh, foolish enough to be dealing with that big of figures at that time. He said, it has to be. And of course it was. And, and the revelation... Uh, at that point of what had happened with with uh, Charles Hay rocks the Irish political system um and and it really does have a major impact in terms of what everybody said people didn't really kind of grasp i suppose just how how dramatic this was going to be across the the political divide because all of a sudden um you had you had so many figures that were connected to Hahi and connected around him and who had supported him and who hadn't. And of course, it didn't look great for Bertie Hearn because everybody felt Bertie Hearn was Charlie's um, chosen successor. Uh, and that was, of course, going to mean that Bertie Hearn was going to have to show some handy footwork if he was to avoid implication in all of this too. Now, the Rainbow Coalition decides that they want to they know the election is coming they have to have the election uh, their their term is coming to an end but they're trying to work on the timing of it and labor are desperate to hold the seats and labor have some sense here of of you know justification because they're the ones that are, are under the real pressure and they want to retain their seats and it's weird it's weird in a way and it must have been a bizarre situation for labor because they're looking at their poll numbers going down. They know that they've taken a hit, but they seem to be getting a really big kicking, you know, coming their way, according to the polls. And yet the policies haven't been bad. The performance in government hasn't been bad. They've been two reasonably successful governments, uh, You certainly, it would be fair to say. They have been getting through a lot of their agenda that they'd promised. And, you know, all of these financial scandals and stuff like this that's beginning to emerge... It's affecting Fianna Fáil, definitely. It's certainly affecting Fine Gael too. It's not affecting Labour. And yet, the poll numbers are going south. And that really, really was a difficult one for Labour to grasp, I think, at this point. But Labour decide that they would like a June election. That's the moment they decide. Now, Bruton wants to wait longer. He wants to wait until, you know, he's, he's thinking the autumn. And there's been some debate over this because Bruton believed... Possibly quite rightly that this was going to be, the tribunals were going to be reporting <clears throat> or there was going to be more evidence from the tribunals and that as as this went on, <clears throat> that would negatively impact Fianna Fáil. Maybe, maybe that could have, but it was going to take years before the full breadth of those tribunals really came to bear. But there would be more negative stuff after um the, the, the June, so, so that might have helped. um, But in reality... 
what Labour knew, and, and to be fair to Labour, one of the reasons they were going for June is they were also aware that once you, the public know the election is coming, they get tired of the outgoing government very quickly. And it's a dangerous thing to keep pushing back for a couple of moments and saying, well, for the sake of this week and next week, we'll push it out a bit further and a bit further. Once the public know it's coming, there is a sense that they want to get it done and dusted and get it over with and have the election. And you can be seen to be clinging to power and you can be seen to become tiresome in holding on to it. Um, and it's always ill-advised to be hanging on with your fingernails to power at this point. And that's what the public begin to sense this government's doing. It's like, we know the election's happening and let's just have it. So Labour want to go with June. And that's where we come to in the 1997 election. As they approach that, they decide we're going to go with June. And they decide to do, Labour don't have much options here. The relationship with Fianna Fáil is particularly bad uh, after 1994, obviously. They don't have a huge amount of options. So the Rainbow Coalition goes and says, well, look, we are going to be the, the alternative. Let's get re-elected. And they actually go out and campaign as a unit, as, as, as across the three parties to re-elect the Rainbow Coalition. Um, and... Again, uh, election lit uh, on on Twitter at election lit has put up some some great images from some of the materials of that campaign. One of the really unusual things was that they actually produced this joint literature. Uh, that's how much they wanted to prove how well all three parties get on. That's a partnership that works, and the three party leaders, Conchita Rasa, John Bruton, and Dick Spring all featuring on it, really pushing the idea that this partnership, they get along, they work together, re-elect the team across these three parties. Highly unusual, um, but that's how they saw it. They, they felt there weren't all that many options here. Work across, vote for any of these three parties and then transfer across them. That makes sense. And that was the platform on which they decided to seek re-election. But it was not... Um, all plain sailing on the other side of the house either because Fianna Fáil had to deal with a number of things at, at this point but the financial stuff was not going to go away that was going to be the one that, that they were going to be a little bit scared about here because that could timing wise it could damage them and it's worth just going back and and uh, it's covered in um, Mick Clifford's and Shane Coleman's book uh, Bertie Hearn and the Drumcondra Mafia um, and just to, to quote just from that, a little bit of what was the background to the, the financial issue as it was at that point that was beginning to, to, to engulf Fianna Fáil. It says, quote, The great unravelling had begun just six months previously in November 1996 when the Irish Independent broke the story that Government Minister Michael Lowry had an extension to his home paid for by supermarket magnate Ben Dunn. From such beginnings emerged the news that Charlie Hahi had received £1 million from Dunn back in the 1980s. Hahi was by then nearly five years into a retirement, during which his achievements in public life had gone through a serious revision. The cordite that had swirled around him for much of his career had been blown away. In its place, there was a warm regard for somebody who, as he said himself, had done the state some service. There were even strong rumours that he might have a run for the presidency. 
Then his carefully constructed edifice of elder statesmen was shattered. Following the revelation about Dunn, more worms began appearing out of the muck. A tribunal was established under Justice Brian McCracken to establish the circumstances in which a serving Taoiseach had come in to large sums of money. Ahern began to distance himself from his old mentor. As always, he went out of his way not to offend, but ensured that he got the message across. The prize of Taoiseach had once more loomed into view. At the opening of the Fianna Fáil Ardesh on the 18th of April 1997, Ahern addressed the issues facing Hahi. He told the assembled faithful, Certainly there would be no place in our party today for that kind of past behaviour. No matter how eminent the person involved or the extent of their prior services to the country. He went on, even in the particular instance, there were no favours sought or given. We would not contone the practice of senior politicians seeking or receiving from a single donor large sums of money or services in kind. Unquote. Now that gives you a sense of just how Fianna Fáil were going to deal with this. They were going to say, look, nothing, nothing has happened here in terms of what's been given or, or given out by the various people on it. Uh, in terms of there were no favours done for it. But we're not condoning it and it wouldn't be happening now. Um, let's call a halt. Let's, let's again, to, to draw a line in the sand, which is a line that will come back to haunt them. Um, but that idea of, you know, look, we can say here, and, and, and Ahern is using the fancy footwork here to get around this issue because they don't want this to muck up what seems to be a really great opportunity to... Uh, get back into government and to make Bertie Ahern Taoiseach. So that's the mood at which they, they, they start to get ready or start to think about getting ready for the election. Now, it's not all, though, just as simple. On the surface, that's how it looks because they're the starting positions. They're what people are, are, are getting ready for. Uh, they're how the parties begin to set themselves up. Um. But there's something different that needs to be uh, looked at in this election. Over the course of these podcasts, we've talked a lot about the modern era. And, and quite rightly, the idea of the modern era from 77 onwards being that kind of modern era, the kind of elections we'd all recognise um, from today. But in a purely academic way, uh, Kevin Rafter, um, the academic, has, has argued that of course, from 77 onwards, there was just a different period of, of elections, but not necessarily the really modern election. 97, he argues, was the first completely, utterly modern election that we would, we would look at in this era, the real modern era of it. Why? Because 97, you know, while a lot of the tactics had been put together previously in elections that we've talked about, you know, from the manifestos to the posters to how they're organised, so on. 97 does change things. Fianna Fáil go through yet another revolution of political approach. It's Fianna Fáil, yet again, 20 years on from 77, who are going to reinvent the political game uh, completely and are going to change how other parties campaign forevermore after 97. And Rafter makes a, uh, has a paper on this, which makes a very strong argument on the fact that Fianna Fáil bring professionalism, uh, as in real professionalism, into the political mould in, in 1997. 
Uh, and that's where I, I, it's something that does change it. And I think we have to spend a bit of time there for understanding what was this revolution in political campaigning that Fianna Fáil are, are, are going to bring to the 97 election. Because similar to what happened in 77, what you get is a government, a rainbow coalition, who are ready to go, partnership that works, we're three, we get along, we've done well, we've got through it, we should be rewarded. There's a, for Fine Gael, there's a, a sense here yet again of, you know, expectation. Well, look, we stepped in in 94 when we had to, and we've come back in, and we've given you a good, strong, solid government. We get along well with our partners now. Come on, reward us. And yet again, Fine Gael are going to be told, you don't get rewarded. You, they seem to have this standoff where they're almost waiting. And the three leaders of this uh, Rainbow Coalition are going to struggle in this campaign because they never really set the world alight. It's not exact. Meanwhile, Fianna Fáil have changed something. And Fianna Fáil are doing similar to 77. Fianna Fáil are now going to change politics again and it's going to have a dramatic impact perhaps on the campaign itself. Not necessarily on Fianna Fáil's figures and numbers, but in how they organise campaigns, yes, definitely. Uh, and it's going to have a big impact. Uh, and just a quote from, from Kevin Rafter, he says, uh, quote, However, Ahern was a good organiser and he recognised that if Fianna Fáil was going to survive the long-term decline in its vote, it had to appeal beyond core Fianna Fáil voters. This was a significant shift for Fianna Fáil, which had hitherto campaigned against all other parties. But Ahern recognised that the party could boost its seat total if it could pick up second preference votes from supporters of other parties. A good example of this was in the 1996 Dublin West by-election that elected Brian Lenehan Jr. on the basis of Fine Gael transfers. Ahern also recognised that Fianna Fáil might need the support of other parties if it were to form a government. So he worked with the PDs to form an alliance. In doing so, he gradually ensnared them so firmly that the smaller parties' options were effectively closed down by the time of the, the election came. In essence, it was Ahern's ability to attract lower preference votes and embrace coalition. Uh, unquote. Now, what? There's a couple of really interesting points there that I think just have to be, um, have to be have to be mentioned in in this, uh, because there are. Fianna Fáil here have, have um, changed what their, their approach to politics and, and Ahern is going to change the approach to um, Fianna Fáil in that. And, and sorry, can I just make correction uh, there because that, that piece I've just read out there was actually from um, uh, O'Malley uh, 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 in his uh, um, paper on, on Fianna Fáil and Bertie Ahern. I'm going to also quote from Kevin Rafter in a moment, but that piece, actually Owen O'Malley's piece, um, and Gary Murphy. So look, at what they're saying there, though, is that Ahern begins to change the mindset in Fianna Fáil over these years after 94, when he's in opposition, and he begins to realise, look, Fianna Fáil vote, he, he senses something that they realise. Fianna Fáil's vote is actually long-term in decline. It's, it's going down. The, the days of over 50%, despite these opinion poll things, giving them boosts and so often long term it's changed you're not getting those big results and he begins to recognize that he also begins to recognize that the Fianna Fáil way of us against the world is not paying dividends and it's not going to work you need friends in politics you can't go out and keep attacking every other party and say we're the only party that makes sense because eventually 
you're just on your own all the time. And he realizes if you're to get power and if you're to have change and difference, you're going to have to make some things up here with other people. And Ahern begins to appeal across the board. He wants to change Fianna Fáil's appeal um, that people in Fine Gael shouldn't necessarily hate Fianna Fáil. They should be able to go, yeah, well, Fianna Fáil, but Fianna Fáil are okay. You know, I could, I could give them a transfer. You know, they can be reasonable. And Bertie wants to be reasonable, um, which is something other Fianna Fáil leaders weren't. No one in Fine Gael, like Tahi, Reynolds, none of them were, they were, they were. You know, you couldn't. Ahern, it's different. He's kind of saying, that, guys, I'm not the worst. You know, you could give me an old preference. And he also ensnares, uh, as I say there, as, as, as um, O'Malley and Murphy say, they're, they're ensnaring the, the progressive Democrats. And this is interesting because you've got to remember, Fianna Fáil and the PDs had this massive falling out in 92. Um, then Fianna Fáil are in with Labour. Um, and then you get this change in, in, in government. And of course, something else is changing in there because Des O'Malley is going to move on from the leadership and Mary Harney takes over and this offers a new opportunity to say look let bygones be bygones Fianna Fáil and Progressive Democrats are now both in opposition let's take this government apart together let's work together and effectively in the same way as the rainbow are going to go out you're going to have an alternative which is going to say Fianna Fáil and the Progressive Democrats there's your next government guys it's that simple um you've two blocks two trends it's it's you know and it was a big change for Fianna Fáil because a lot of people in Fianna Fáil still didn't forgive the PDs for 1992 or what had happened but they realized we got to get over it because we're going to need their support in government we need those extra seats and you know what maybe it is a new era where it can uh, work together uh, and people can work together on it that I suppose was one of the great achievements in it but then there's this professionalisation, as I say, of the party that happens. And, and this is Kevin Rafter uh, in, in what he says here. Um, he says, by the time Bertie Ahern was elected leader of Fianna Fáil in late 1994, the party had experienced three decades of internal disquiet. The party leadership was an ongoing issue of contention from the moment Jack Lynch had replaced Sean Lamass in '66. Several big beasts, and Charles Hockey in particular, discommoded by the elevation of the unassuming Lynch, waited in the wings for their opportunity to take the throne. Notwithstanding the arms crisis in 69-70 to 70 and a general election defeat in 73, which ended 16 consecutive years in office, Lynch proved to be more durable than his internal detractors ever considered likely. Ultimately, however, the Hockey faction narrowly defeated Lynch's preferred successor, George Colley, in 79. But the transition to a new party leader only deepened the already bitter fault lines that existed in the party. A period of leadership heaves and motions of no confidence followed. Although Hahi enjoyed a period of authority as Fianna Fáil leader after 86, his eventual replacement of Hahi with Albert Reynolds in 92 opened new divisions. If anything, the manner of the succession and Reynolds casting aside of many Hahi associates only further exposed the party's internal factions. The party Bertie Ahern took over as leader in late 94 was shocked at the loss of office. The acrimonious collapse of its coalition government with the Labour Party only two years in office shunted Fianna Fáil into opposition without recourse to a general election. Reynolds' resignation meant that he served the shortest term of any Fianna Fáil leader. The leading loyalist from the Reynolds wing of the party, Maura Gagan Quinn, ultimately opted not to contest a leadership contest as Ahern took the prize unopposed. But Fianna Fáil remained divided and in need of major reorganisation if the party was to return to power. 
Irish politics had all, was also in a period of great change. The electorate was increasingly defined by declining party loyalty, with increased voter fragmentation and more electoral uh, volatility. The value of lower preference votes had increased, unquote. Now, this is a, a, a key point. You take, Bertie Hearn has taken over the party. He's, he's trying to say, let's get over the divisions. He has a little bit of luck in that many of those from the, the what was the, the, the Reynolds Ring, the country and Western Ring, um, I would have been part of that at the time. We're kind of feeling that, look, we've been the wrong side of this division for long enough. It's time to put things aside. And in some ways, it was a great news for Fianna Fáil because... Everybody puts it aside. Bertie Ahern holds out an olive branch and says to people, we don't need division. I know I come from a different side, but, you know, we can keep all of the old country and Western wing of the party happy. You don't fall out with us. You can come in, you can come back, uh, and, and we're not going to have any retribution hockey style here. And of that old country and Western wing, everybody, as I say myself at the time, would have been involved in that. And and there was a sense of, yeah, we got to let these divisions go. We, gotta, we can't keep this fight going on. You know, man's leader, when our guy was leader, we wished he would get this support. We've got to give this support to this guy. And although some people were still agitating against Bertie at small level, most were kind of saying, look, we've got to get up and get on with it. And that meant swallowing some bitter pills, one of which would be the return of Ray Burke to the Fianna Fáil uh, front bench. And, and that was tough to take uh, if you're in the country and western wing of the party. Really tough to take. But, you know, it was all taken in this sense of party loyalty. Look, we have to get over the division, get back country first. The country will be well served by a strong Fianna Fáil government and if that means Ray Burke and others are back, well, so be it. And you know, it's one of those big regrets you have, one of those regrets I have. I think, you know what, yeah, it was all taken a little bit too lightly and, and questioning of the new regime that was coming into Fianna Fáil was not properly laid out and made perhaps too much loyalty uh, Ensured that Bertie Hearn, even if he was, you know, talking about the positives for Bertie Hearn, it didn't help him in a way because mistakes were made because some of the decisions were made too easy that should have been a lot more difficult. Um, but all of that is a, a digression because it is, that's the party that, that they're looking at. And, and from the outside, that seems fairly simple. Uh, and why wouldn't you be able to uh, change that and, and, and defeat it if you're in the Rainbow Coalition with these guys having this? So, yeah, even if Bertie Hearn's getting them a little bit more transfer-friendly, but would that make a big difference? Again, going back to Kevin Rafter, uh, just to, to, to take more on this, he says, quote, Many top-tier Fianna Fáil leaders recognise the party's need to broaden its appeal, not only to hold on to first preference support, but also to maximise its lower preference vote. Securing this type of support in a political system undergoing considerable change was central to re the reorganisation undertaken in Fianna Fáil between 94 and 97. The strategy involved greater central party control over candidate selection, thereby diluting the significance of the local party organisation. Fewer candidates were nominated to maximise seats won based on the available share of the vote. 
There was a very tight time frame to complete this rebuilding project. The manner in which John Bruton's rainbow government of Fine Gael, Labour and Democratic Left took office without a general election meant that the next Dáil contest was at most two and a half years away. Rather than having a normal five-year parliamentary term in which to regroup, Ahern and his team started in opposition with at most half the time available. But as one Ahern advisor said, that was an advantage. Entering opposition mid-cycle, we had only two and a half years at most to the general election. We all knew there was a finite time to work together. Healing the internal divisions in the 94 to 97 period when Fianna Fáil was in opposition underpinned a political communication and campaign professionalisation project unlike any seen previously in Irish politics. There are some parallels with the rebuilding process engaged in by the British Labour Party under Tony Blair, which Gould describes as the creation of a new campaigning organisation. A centralised, leader-driven campaign in 1997 was underpinned by unprecedented polling and other research methods, as well as neutering of the party membership, with a further shift in terms of the involvement of outside experts, specifically American political consultants. Mayer's uh, prediction that the age of the amateur Democrat has waned was certainly true about the Fianna Fáil campaign in 1997, as Ahern and his team of advisers capitalised on this highly sophisticated political strategy, unquote. And there's the key thing that's beginning to happen. The Rainbow Coalition aren't going to see this going on on the ground, but campaigning is about to change here. And it's about to change because Fianna Fáil are doing something very different. Number one... They're broadening their appeal ever so slightly. Uh, they're getting in there for preferences rather than the head first. And, and at one level, it seems like a little bit almost weak of Fianna Fáil. But on another, this is going to pay big dividends. And then what the rainbow is missing is that all the while Fianna Fáil is about to change politics, are getting very professional. One thing they do as I mentioned there, is they reduce the number of candidates. So the central party is going to step in here and say to the local organisation, and, and the thing about it is, in the local organisation, you always want, you're, you say, well, I want a candidate down my area, and the guys over the other side, they want a candidate in their area, and the, and you end up with loads of candidates. And then the idea is, well, well, you know, surely they'll all transfer to each other and we'll pick up votes. If you don't have a candidate in my area, sure, look at, you know, then nobody will vote for, for our party. But that's not how it actually works. What happens is people vote for the candidate in their area because people will vote for their party and they vote for the party first. And then they say, well, I need to vote, say, Fianna Fáil. So I'll vote Fianna Fáil. If there's no candidate in my area, I'll vote Fianna Fáil in the other and then I'll probably vote number two for someone in my area. If there is a Fianna Fáil candidate in my area, I'll vote number one, the Fianna Fáil candidate in my area, and then probably number two, whatever other party, because I've served party loyalty. And that's what you call vote leakage. And it means that you have too many candidates, you're splitting your vote, you're not far enough up the chain and suddenly you're not getting the transfers and then your candidates are going to go out too early. So you need to ensure less candidates, most of the time, as a golden rule, less candidates, the better. That's what gets you in. And Fianna Fáil HQ come in and first of all, they begin to neuter the local organisation by saying, we're going to decide how many candidates are here. You're not going to get the kind of power to to do that anymore and that's a positive in terms of just forcing the local organization now it's done in probably a bit of a ham-fisted way with hindsight because what they do is they just come in and do it there's no real getting the grassroots to buy into this idea or explaining it it's just done 
You also heard there about polling. Now, one of the interesting things about polling that Fianna Fáil do here is they try to use, they're bringing in a lot of professional consultants, people who are now going to be paid. So this isn't like, you know, bringing in somebody um, before who comes in voluntarily and says, yeah, yeah, and we're all just in this together. These are going to be people who are going to be paid um, for their thoughts and their opinions. Um, and they're going to find new ways to involve the organisation. So the organisation is going to be involved in like focus groups and thoughts. And, you know, they'll be involved in actually doing polling um, was one of the things that they will get the, the local organisation at. Not retained to this day, I don't believe, as a method. But certainly when these pollsters come in, they get the party, do their own polls. So you don't have to, you know, go out and get you know, uh, random people, you can use your organisation to do it. And I remember being involved in this at the time uh, in the, the run-up to 97 election. It was fascinating. You were told, you know, where to go. You were given a phone call. You were saying, next Saturday, we need you to do polling in Meath. And you were told to go to a hotel. You arrived at a hotel. You were given a load of sample ballot papers. Um, you were assigned to a local person who was your driver for the day. And that local person had a number of people marked on the electoral register and they drove you around and you went to the door and you said, listen, I'm doing some polling. Will you fill in this uh, ballot paper? And then the person inserted that ballot paper into an envelope and sealed the envelope. And we took that away and that was sent back to you know the people who are going to assemble the poll data. But that was a new way of kind of helping keep particularly younger OGRA members of the, the party in. Bizarre experience, I could tell you. There's a fill another podcast with stories from those polling, um, calling to houses and stuff. Uh, but that was the kind of thing they were doing. But they were getting an awful lot more data here. Fianna Fáil was going to be well briefed on data locally. And part of that polling, and the reason the polling was, was down to giving the sample ballot paper, was they needed to know where the preferences were going. And that's what they were looking at. How do we start getting candidates in on, on preference voting and where that's going to change? And again, that was beginning to happen and nobody was noticing the, the, the strict professionalisation of it. Then they're looking at it, getting a, a core team in. And one of the people, of course, who's going to make a comeback at this era is PJ Mara, who is going to uh, return to the political fold now that Bertie Hearn is there. And just again, to, to go back to... Um, uh, Kevin Rafter on this. He says, quote, the recruitment of a core team around a Hearn was crucial. He inherited Martin Manzer as a senior party advisor, one centrally involved in Northern Ireland and a pivotal policy area that a Hearn had not previously engaged in seriously. Paddy Duffy, a long-time confidant, spearheaded a recruitment process that led to the employment of a group of relatively young and politically inexperienced personnel who populated the party's media and research offices in Leinster House. As one of those recruited explained, Paddy looked for skill sets that did not necessarily involve having a political or Fianna Fáil background. He was looking for press and research skills. Not knowing about politics was almost a plus. Ahern invited long-term Fianna Fáil advisor PJ Mara to oversee the new structures. Mara had been government press secretary under Charles Hawhey, but had spent most of the post-1992 period working as a public affairs consultant with a number of pri uh, high-profile corporate clients. One of his initial tasks was to expand the core Leinster House and Mount Street term teams with party loyalists who were working in other sectors. Communications expert Eileen Gleeson, who had previously been employed by the party as a press officer, recalled being contacted by PJ Mara in the early to mid-1995. 
He asked her, do you want to go on a two-year project to see if we can make a Taoiseach out of Bertie Ahern? Gleeson was struck by the composition of the team of full-time staff and volunteers like herself that was being put in place. Our only ambition was to win. There were loads of fresh, young people complemented by seasoned professional campaigners. Other full-time staff members arrived during the 94-97 to period, but the core team put in place by Duffy shortly after Ahern became leader was at the heart of the election campaign and its success in 1997, So they start putting together this team and it's very different to what's been done before because they're looking to actually employ people, people who don't necessarily in some ways have political experience, then others who do, and they're, they're making a mix of people here. Um, but they're very definite about the type of people they want in. It's not just anybody who will fill the role and do the thing. It has to be something. Um, it has to be something with real depth for them. Um, and uh, going on to to explain to maybe more of what was happening here, Ennis Rafter says, uh, "Quote: Three full-time research officers based in Leinster House worked with the party's front bench, and each research officer was allocated responsibility for a number of different policy areas. The structure was designed to operate irrespective of the effort or commitment of the individual front bench members." Research officers were instructed to constantly submit parliamentary questions, prepare dull motions and write policy statements for for public release. They even produced policy documents in priority areas without the active engagement of party spokespeople. The draft documents prepared with the involvement of non-party members were instead sent directly to the party leader who took responsibility for advancing them at front bench meetings. There was nothing inherently new in this approach as both Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael had implemented similar structures since the 1980s during a second age period. But those involved in 94 to 97 period admit there was a deeper level of professionalisation to the policy work undertaken. Moreover, staffers openly admit that good ideas were borrowed from all areas and were incorporated into Fianna Fáil policy. The activity of the policy committees varied considerably. Some hardly met, but we were constantly on the phone to people asking for advice, and the structure had the benefit of uh, support, supplying names and contacts outside advisors to help us. An added change from past campaigns was the ongoing publication of policy documents, estimated at more than 40 in total, all of which emerged from the consultation process. External members also populated the party's communications and organisation committees, but most of these individuals were loyalists with previous connections to Fianna Fáil, either as members or employees. The central role of the party leader and his office was seen in that Ahern kept a close eye on committee discussions. For example, while Mara chaired the communication committee, a close confidant of Ahern was also member. Another member recalled that when contentious issues arose, this confidant would frequently say, we'll have to take that one to the boss. Unquote. So they're getting all these committees and they've got all this as a new structure of doing it. They're pumping out stuff. And what's interesting there is that sometimes even your party spokesperson, your front branch spokesperson isn't involved. And what you're seeing there is a complete centralization of stuff under the party leader. This is more presidential. This is like what goes on in the States or in the, the UK. At times here, they're ignoring the party front bench. This is going to be dramatic. It is also going to have some negative impacts on Fianna Fáil as organisationally. But in the short term, this is important because what they're doing now is they're changing it. They're getting advice from all sides. There's no longer the closed thing of a Fianna Fáil. They can change policy without reference to our Deshina or big discussions. It's going to the boss. 
the Basel side it and it'll be sent up to him and you know what the boss will meet at the front bench meeting and say listen I've heard a great policy in your area here's one you should take with you it's a completely different way of doing business from what you had gone before um, and then it looks at some of the, the, the other stuff of who they're bringing in here and uh, again Kevin Rafter says quote a number of leading U.S. political consultants who brought outside validation to decision-making are specifically credited with introducing a deeper level of analysis to poll data and honing down core messages. As one advisor remarked, they moved us up to the next level. They knew how to read polls and how to put a narrative on poll data. The involvement of the American consultants was, according to one advisor, kept tight. We were aware of their involvement, but it was unspeakable. Uh, the consultants, and in particular Bob Shrum and Tad Devine, decamped in Dublin for several extended periods. One member of Ahern's team said the maximum use was from 95 to 97. They brought something new, but that diminished in importance after 97. There was a consensus among the Ahern team about their influence. They lived with us for weeks at a time. They designed polling, sat in on focus group sessions. They reworked language and devised slogans. A lot of credit for their work went to PJ Mara as they couldn't be visible. The show business element of politics was down to them. They took us out of the first division and put us into the premiership. They enhanced what I knew about politics, unquote. Now, you can see here what's actually happened in Irish politics. So you're getting a complete, similar to in 77 when Seamus Brennan had come back from America. Now in 97, they're bringing over these US consultants who are saying, look, this is how you run it. This is how you put the narrative on the poll data. This is how you change it. And that's big. It's big in politics. It's big in Irish politics because it's going to change it. From now on, once the Rainbow Coalition, the Rainbow Coalition are sitting there still doing it, fighting the last election, still doing it with their own core team of people in there. They're not at this game at all. And they're not out there fighting for preference votes. They're still doing the old straight down the line, vote for us against the other guy. And they're not getting the, the nuances that are going on in behind all that. And that's the piece that's going to change. Because from there on, once it's realised after 97, all parties are going to look at being a lot more professional about this stuff in future. But the environment overall has changed as well by 97. Because there's other things you've got to take into account here. As they're moving into this, um, you want to, uh, you've got to understand that the media environment too is is changing. Um, it's no longer just about and up to even ninety two, you were talking about in elections being able to go out the 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 need to get RTE and say the Irish Independent and the Irish Times and that was your core effort here you know that was that was what you were doing how you were aimed at that was beginning to change because local radio had now become absolutely important it was it was really really it was embedded by the time the 97 election comes along it's really embedded in the psyche of Irish people at local radio level uh, and you also have options at national radio level too and there are more outlets, there's more, more talk and discussion. And we still don't have, interesting to note, any form, obviously, of online campaigning. That would be something that was, was lost. If you look at the posters, Fianna Fáil does have an email address, um, fall at iol.ie. Didn't even have their own domain name, uh, which just shows just that the, the technological revolution, the, the internet revolution, had not hit in 97. People were still, you know, a long way off understanding that 
there was going to be an online world out there or, or it would have any impact on politics. But the media landscape was certainly changing uh, and, and developing. And again, uh, just to turn to uh, Kevin Rafter on, on this point, he says, quote, Throughout the 1990s, local radio established a significant foothold with audiences. The new national independent television station was, for a variety of legal and other reasons, delayed in its introduction. <clears throat> Nevertheless, by the 1997 general election, the broadcast landscape was fundamentally transformed with a range of commercial-slash-private broadcasters offering alternative news and current affairs coverage to that provided by RTE. Audience data for the new local stations made the case for those running the Fianna Fáil press office, but initial efforts to reorientate the party's media strategy met with some internal resistance. The TDs were obsessed with national media coverage. We were trying to get on to RTE when we could have been on Radio Kerry five times a week. It was also easier to get on to local radio where programmes were on at the same time and were covering the same issues as national programmes on RTE. Not necessarily any easier with the interviews, but it was easier to get our agenda on the air and the local stations were more open to talking about issues that we couldn't get onto the agenda in national media. Along with the deregulation of the broadcast market, there was also greater visibility for British titles, many publishing local editions for the Irish market. British newspapers have long had a high circulation in Ireland. For example, in the Sunday market at the end of 1991, the combined sales of News of the World, Sunday Mirror and Sunday People were in the region of 300,000 copies or 32% of the entire Sunday newspaper market. In the post-94 period, Ahern's media strategy targeted both local radio and tabloid press, in particular the Irish edition of the News of the World, unquote. And here's the thing in this professionalisation of all this. They're beginning to look at it and they're going to see the data and it's no longer going to be enough to do things on instinct and gut feeling and say, you know, we think this is the way we'll handle it or this would be the best thing to do. This is now going to be about actually putting things over the line, actually knowing what's the data, who should we be talking to, where should we be. And that's what begins to change for 97. Fianna Fáil are working off of completely different data sets to anybody else. Um, and that begins a, a professionalisation of politics. But it also changes that Fianna Fáil begins to look to other media. Well, the traditional way, as I say, was maybe to be in the Irish Independent and the Irish Times, and the Rainbow Coalition was criticised for its efforts at the time, electorally and politically, to engage all the time with the, the Irish Times, which was perceived to be, you know, with the paper of record and all that. But how many people are actually reading it? And who else is out there? Fianna Fáil begins to look at the tabloid press in particular um, and, and you know, the news of the world, as, as mentioned there, and, and let me take a, a further quote from Rafter on that, quote, on the 18th of May 97, a prominent two-page interview with Ahern also delivered a front-page story under the headline Ahern and Secret Peace Mission. The Fianna Fáil leader was applauded for his proposed initiatives in relation to the Northern Ireland peace process. An editorial in the Irish edition on the same issue dramatically observed, Ahern has the makings of greatness. He could become a statesman to equal the legendary Eamon de Valera. A vote for Ahern would be a vote for all Ireland. The tabloid did not explicitly advise its readers to vote who to vote for in 97, but the message was clear through a juxtaposition of an editorial calling for strong government to fight crime and cut taxes alongside an opinion article by Bertie Ahern headlined with his promise, we'll go to war over jobs, crime and taxes, unquote. 
you know, look, this is, is, is this how you, you do, there's always a debate about media and media's influence on politics. And I'm not always convinced that media has as big an influence as people think, but it is out there and it's, it's people will feel it. And there is no doubt in this, Fianna Fáil was looking to the media to say, look, it's time for change here. And they start to court media at a way that the, the, Rainbow Coalition aren't doing here. They're still out there talking about the record and that's all they want to talk about. People actually don't want to hear about your record. Your record is the past. They don't care. What they want to know is what you're going to do next. And that's where Fianna Fáil was getting on with and they're getting on to the media about this too. But Fianna Fáil was also very quick uh, to note what was what they had to do with media and they, they had special teams set up for this um, and again to pick from from Kevin Rafter uh, on this from a quote he has uh, from a, a, a party advisor at the time and it says quote we formed offensive and defensive teams in election HQ set up a room with a bank of radio and television recording equipment volunteers would be in there listening and recording to all the programs and there were people around the country also listening and recording and getting feedback to Dublin. The room in HQ was populated by young lawyers who wanted to get involved. This was all new. We knew what was on the different stations. It meant we could counter any story and ensure immediate reaction, unquote. Now, again, I'm going to say, um, hands up, I was involved in one of those teams in that media monitoring thing. I was recruited at the time in, in 97. Um and we were was was very much on the home patch the Reynolds campaign of of 97 but it was different there wasn't a lot as much time required we kind of knew Albert was going to go in and was all solid there and I was asked to go to headquarters to help with this media monitoring and I remember going up and, and look it wasn't exactly exciting sounds exciting wasn't I was put into a broom with a load of other people and a whole load of radios and tape recording equipment and you were assigned a number of stations and when the news came on or any piece came on you hit record you hit play and then you summarized what's just been said in us and you told them this needs to be um, tackled they've said this about us we need to challenge that and it was timed so you knew we got two minutes, 30 seconds, and the other guys got four minutes. Uh, we got to complain about that. That kind of stuff. That was the level it was being done at. And you assembled all that on a sheet of paper. You gave it to somebody and they went upstairs with us and it was all being observed continually. But Fianna Fáil were responding and were ahead of the media all the time. And it was largely because at that top room, you were no longer involved in the top room. There was other tasks for the volunteers down the line. But you were feeding into a group at the top room who who were very professional about this and were using you for entirely different purposes now. Perhaps less exciting ones, but that was how it was it was going to work and it was going to be effective. You know, one of the things that Fianna Fáil were, this, they, were they were great at coming up with stuff I found, you know, a recording of, of John Bruton, for instance, at the time, saying he was tired of answering thing questions about the peace process uh, was released, which, you know, they come across. And it was that kind of sense of, again, pushing, oh, John Bruton doesn't care about the peace process. You know, the, the guy was actually just frustrated with so many other things. And yet he was getting hammered about the peace process and it was a throwaway comment. But, you know fed into the story and Fianna Fáil if you like had a dirty tricks unit that was good at doing this kind of stuff uh, but that media campaign that media campaign is important because it leads the way into how Fianna Fáil react uh, and how Fianna Fáil are seen to react uh, within the media and among the people that they 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 are are 
debating with. They have the responses ready. It does allow them to become a lot more flexible, but it is all about data at the end of the day and how they're interpreting and handling that data. Now, on, on Twitter, I, I asked people, you know, what their memories in 97 was. And of course, having been through two podcasts where I had a lot of good labour memories, I Pat McAuliffe, who, who is in Fianna Fáil in uh, Dunleary, um, he he said, you know, look, at finally, 97 was a good election, one that he, he liked remembering. One of the interesting things he was saying was that, like, it was hard to actually get uh, a meeting place when you were getting ready to canvas, he found that year, that could cope with all the cars that uh, were there for all the volunteers. You needed a big car park because so many people wanted to canvas. And you know what? That was part of it. It was a June election. It was summer. It was sunny. It was a great time to be out. And that was unusual at this stage in Irish politics to get a nice summer election. Uh, and they were enjoying it. They were enjoying the, the, the being out and about in it. But it wasn't, uh, as we say, all, all plain sailing um, because at the same time, the polls were showing pretty good results for, for Fianna Fáil overall um, in, in the, the, the campaign. But the campaign itself perhaps didn't really take, take flight. Uh, Mac, uh, uh, Stephen Collins in, in the, the Sunday Tribune Guide to Politics published after the election said, quote, the general election of June 1997 produced one of the strangest results in Irish political history. The turnout was the lowest for 70 years and all three of parties, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour, all performed poorly by historical standards. Uh, unquote. Now, you know, that's a key point here because what you're seeing in this election is people are, are, are struggling to really engage with it. The activists are there and it's very professional, but it's not really taking fire. Collins continues, quote, It was an election without issues and without passion, through which the three parties of the outgoing rainbow government appeared to be sleepwalking much of the time. Fianna Fáil was better prepared than any other party, and Ahern demonstrated a great deal of energy during the campaign. This energy, though, was almost solely directed at covering as many miles and shaking as many hands as possible. He evinced no appetite for new policies or ideas and didn't offer an alternative vision for the future. The shallowness of the campaign was mirrored in the media coverage, which was dominated by a soft focus concentration on pictures and colour pieces rather than political debate. It was hardly surprising then that the voters stayed away from the polls in large numbers and produced an indecisive result. The solitary television debate between Ahern and Bruton took place with less than 48 hours to go. Bruton was the easy winner in the contest and while it took place far too late to have a de decisive impact on the result, it probably contributed something to the low Fianna Fáil vote. Unquote. Now, this is the interesting thing here because... One of the things that fascinated people sometimes about 97 uh, is what was actually going on in the public's mind. As I've mentioned, you had all this financial stuff beginning to emerge. And if you're like, at that stage, the only two parties really affected by it are Fianna Gael and uh, Fianna Fáil. You might say, OK, well, that's because they're the two biggest parties and they were involved in government, whatever. But in particular, Fianna Fáil was hit by this. And yet it's not having an impact on the perception of their vote. That's as, as, as was being assumed if you looked at the polls. So why was it? Why, why, why was it that, that people didn't, did not care? But the truth is a lot can be traced back 
to the apathy of the turnout being low in this election. And when people were getting fed up, they weren't looking to other parties, they were just staying at home. And and meanwhile, other people were continuing on voting. And it's the people who vote that make the decision ultimately on things. Um, and that's what impacted it. Labour are going to struggle here all the time because for Labour, the damage was the party had had to try and, and reinvent itself again. And you know what? The voters that it should be reinventing itself to were most likely staying away, disillusioned with politics now, weren't going to go to the polls. And that was a particular um that was a particular challenge. Um now the results of the election uh, we're gonna to have to get into because the election ploughs on and, and it dramatically changes the views of, of of how politics how it works because we had two strong if you like alternatives but yet the public don't seem to really decide for either of them. Uh, I'm going to turn to Stephen Collins in his, his book, The Power Game, again here. He says, uh, quote, Right through the campaign, the opinion polls favoured Fianna Fáil. This helped the feel-good aspect of the party's campaign, but it will become apparent later that they seriously overestimated the level of popular support. The last poll of the campaign, which, in a break with precedent, appeared in the Irish Independent only 24 hours before voting, gave Fianna Fáil 44% of the vote and was widely taken as indicating the contest was over. In another break with precedent, the Independent carried a front-page editorial on the same day, strongly backing a Fianna Fáil progressive Democrat government on the basis that the two parties were promising big cuts in the tax rates. The editorial headlined Payback Time and was felt by Fine Gael in particular to be a serious blow, although it probably made little difference to the outcome. The final ingredient that went to Hearn's way was a deal with the PDs on the formation of a government had been announced early in the campaign. The PDs went on to have a disastrous campaign, but the pact helped to portray Hearn as a winner because he was assured of the support of the smaller party in the new doll. The collapse of the PD vote also helped Fianna Fáil to pick up substantial transfers from eliminated PD candidates around the country. Unquote. So... You got this strange thing going on here in in the feel good campaign. Fianna Fáil have got Fianna Fáil are are focused and and they've been looking at the data in depth and they've been professionalizing their campaign. But they're looking at transfers, and that's going to be important because they're actually unable to shift their overall vote, their overall first preference vote. Fianna Fáil aren't looking that attractive, and that's where perhaps. You know, people are staying away and they get the vote they get, but they're not winning people particularly over to to uh to government or, or to Fianna Fáil's vision of government. And therefore you get this indecisive result because the PDs, who are this other party, you would think, would have avoided any of these scandals or anything else as well, similar to Labour, but on a different ideological point. Um, but they've avoided these scandals too. They've been talking about accountability. And yet the PDs are not going to have a good election. And it goes back to this thing that if you have a voting pact before an election, it's clear that it will always benefit the bigger party because bigger parties have more candidates. They'll always have someone in the field. If you're the smaller party, you're probably not likely to get many transfers because the big party has two or three candidates all feeding out of it before that's going to transfer back to you. So it's very limited for a small party to actually get a benefit from these voting packs. And you know what? It also comes back to this point of why vote if you want to have um, 
Fianna Fáil out of government, why would you be voting Labour and Democratic left in these elections? Why would you vote them when you could vote Fine Gael? Because Fine Gael are the one and you're all supporting Fine Gael, so really you're all just Fine Gael, so go with the big block. Why not? Doesn't that make sense? Why would you be too bothered about the PDs if you can vote in this, if you want this alternative, should vote for Bertie? You know, that's the one. So you're threatening all the time your own first preference vote and those transfers are, are, are limiting within that. And, and there's particular problems you're going to look at in what limits the, the, the transferability of candidates, particularly for the PDs. But it's, it's the challenge here because the big parties will always say, get into a pact to offer a firm alternative to the people. And the smaller parties do this and each time find, no, we're, this is not a benefit to us in this because we're just seen as tagging along. Now, Labour had no options here. Now, one of the things that people talk about, again, is, you know, what would Labour have done? Should they have gone out? Should they have said we'd be willing to go in with anybody? But they were out of options. It wasn't really potential they were going to listen to it. Fianna Fáil were, were definite that they were in with the PDs at this point. Um, again, turning back to Stephen Collins in, in the Guide to, to Politics after the 97 election. He says, quote, the turnout was just 66.7%, the lowest recorded since the June election of 1927. In fact, the actual turnout was probably the worst in the history of the state because the electoral register in the 1920s was seriously flawed and there was a significant overestimation of the numbers of voters in some constituencies, particularly in the West. The very low turnout coincided with Fianna Fáil's second worst election since 1927. Under Albert Reynolds in 1992, the party's share of the vote slumped from 44.2% three years earlier to 31.9%. All of the opinion polls and pundits forecasted it would rise significantly in 97. The only question was by how much. The last opinion poll of the campaign, conducted by IMS and published in The Independent the day before polling, put Fianna Fáil on 44% of the vote in the event, the party came in 5% lower and it was only a solid rate of transfers from other parties and candidates which saved the day for Hearn, unquote. Now, here's the really, really interesting thing. Fianna Fáil, you see, opinion polls have been run and people talk about, well, what's the actual opinion poll? People are liking Fianna Fáil. I'm asked straight out, who are you going to vote for? People are at a national level thinking, yeah, Fianna Fáil seem reasonable. But then at a local level, they're probably voting for somebody else first, but they are inclined to transfer. And the polls were maybe skewed by a difficult in predicting this change in attitude to Fianna Fáil. Fianna Fáil had had a lot of this work in ensuring they were transfer friendly uh, and that probably skewed it. But ultimately, the result for Bertie Ahern could have been seen as not all that great because you know, this is only slightly, Fianna Fáil had been through, when we listened to that 92 election podcast and think of what a desperate election that was, how, how poorly ready for it they were, disorganised, in the teeth of a, an absolute storm with Labour ploughing away, uh, you know, to victory. And yet in 97, despite all the professionalism, despite all of the successes, Fianna Fáil actually aren't coming back here with a result much better than what they got in 92. What saves it is that underlying that, they've got the transfer thing right. Um, and, and it's interesting, again, turn back to Stephen Collins on, on the implications for Fianna Fáil and, and Fine Gael in this. 
he says, quote, the long term implications of the fact that the two general elections of the 1990s have seen Fianna Fáil vote at its lowest since the 1920s took some of the gloss off its return to power. In 97, under the direction of Party General Secretary Pat Farrell and Director of Elections PJ Mara, it undoubtedly ran a much better organised and more professional campaign than in 92, but it still failed to make the expected impact. The party's vote has been in consistent decline since 1977, when it won just over 50% under the leadership of Jack Lynch. It slipped back to its historical average in the mid-40% band under Hahi, but under two very different leaders, the country and western Albert Reynolds and the Dubliner Bertie Ahern, it has sunk below 40%. Unquote. Now, the interesting thing there was, despite all the celebrations of Fianna Fáil, what it did point to was that structurally... Something was wrong in Fianna Fáil. Something was going wrong for them. And long-term decline of its vote was happening. We're seeing that time and time again. It's not actually there. They, they're not able to get out the vote that was once possible. And they're not really paying heed to it. They pay heed to it from the point of view that Bertie Hearn recognises it. But rather than addressing it and addressing what might be why are we organisationally, you know, internally not able to do what we once were? They start to say, well, let's forget about it and let's change how we do things and let's just get into being an electoral machine rather than a political movement. Uh, and they begin to lose a bit of the movement and act more like a party. Um, but looking at it, what saved them is the transfers. And again, uh, Stephen Collins' good piece here on, on how these transfers work and, and again, why, why that's... Uh, important from the data perspective. Quote, Fianna Fáil benefited from transfers from the progressive Democrats. And while there is an argument over how many extra seats this delivered to the party, it certainly helped in a number of constituencies. The Fianna Fáil seat in Cork North Central would certainly not have been won without transfers from Maureen Quill of the PDs. And while the PD vote on its own may not have been as decisive in other constituencies, it provided a boost to Fianna Fáil across the country. The effect of the pre-election coalition pact with the PDs can be gauged from the fact that transfers from Mary Harney's party to Fianna Fáil were up from 22.6% in 92 to 57.2% in 97. Conversely, Fine Gael's share of PD transfers declined from 41.9% in 92 to just 16.3% in 97. Fianna Fáil also benefited from transfers from small parties like the National Party and Sinn Féin and did well from independents, even though it also lost its seats in certain areas where independent candidates did so well they won the last seat. In previous elections, Fianna Fáil leaders have often blamed the vagaries of PR for costing the party vital seats and depriving it of power. In 97, luck went with Fianna Fáil and it picked up seats it was not expected to win, winning three out of five in Cork South Central and even more remarkably in Cork North Central were results which nobody had predicted in advance. One of the reasons the vagaries of PR helped Fianna Fáil was that internal discipline broke down within all three major parties and Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Labour and the PDs all had worse internal transfer levels than they did in 92. As the biggest party, Fianna Fáil managed to benefit more from this than the other parties. This was despite losing three seats the party was considered certain to win before polling. Long-time Fianna Fáil member Jackie Healy Ray stood as an independent in Kerry South when he failed to get a Fianna Fáil nomination and stunned the country by taking a seat at the expense of the party. In Donegal South West, the television deflector candidate Tom Gilday took another Fianna Fáil seat, while in Limerick West, another Fianna Fáil independent, Michael Brennan, did so much damage to the party that Fine Gael managed to win two seats. 
unquote. Now, a couple of things in that that are important to know. First of all, there is the benefit to Fianna Fáil of getting these, these, these transfers, particularly from the PDs, and they managed to scoop up all of that uh, PD vote that might be out there. It's good for Fianna Fáil to have friends. So their, their first preference vote is not great here. Uh, there still, there is a resistance to Fianna Fáil to some degree, but they're still by far the most popular party. And with internal discipline breaking down across the party, so in other words, people not voting 1, 2, 3, 4, Fianna Gael, 1, 2, 3, 4, Fianna Fáil, 1, 2, you know, Labour or 1, PDs, and sticking with similar, they're inclined to chop and change or they're inclined to move across parties more. And Fianna Fáil, as the biggest party, are able to absorb that a little bit better and get a benefit out of that. But internal discipline's breaking down across all of them. People aren't voting in the same traditional patterns. And that's going to change things. Now, you're also seeing here how other parties are coming in. Independence. Um, you know, again, when we start on these smaller parties and in independence have times come in, one or two of them. Now you're seeing a shift here. We've seen the PDs come into it. We've seen Labour get an increased role. Now you're seeing these these independents come in. People like Jackie Healy Ray, he comes in in 97. He's a Fianna Fáil man. He's expected, wants to get a nomination, but he doesn't fit in the new modern Fianna Fáil mould, this professional party that Bertie Hearn is shaping and crafting. Jackie's not exactly. They want a different kind of candidate. Um, and Jackie Healy Ray doesn't get a but he goes out and gets elected and he has a very different style, a very unique style. And he's going to come in as an independent now. And that's going to change the makeup of things because uh, he's going to hold a balance of power. Um, these independents uh, coming out on issues all of a sudden begin to say, well, we hold the power. We can get what we want and you're going to have to keep us happy if you want to get into government. Changes everything. Go back to John Bruton talking about Prentice Tarossa holding his career in his hands. This is going to be even more. These are the independents, you know, who just get elected on an issue and they're going to hold who has the Taoiseach's office. Uh, that's incredibly important. But on the other hand, um, the PDs were, were, were going to find a, a, a difficult election here because they had hoped that this was all going to change for them again. They were had hoped they were going to get um a very different um approach uh, from the public. This was to be look. We're working with Fianna Fáil now, and we can get benefit from those Fianna Fáil votes. Surely, when those transfers come to us, wouldn't that be nice? Um, and we're preventing we're or we're presenting a really solid alternative to the Rainbow Coalition. And you know what the PDs are always a party that talked about economics and cutting taxes and a few right-wing kind of strong economic policies there. They expected to do well. Uh, turning back to, to Stephen Collins here and his assessment of it, quote, If Fianna Fáil won more seats than expected, its coalition partner, the PDs, did much worse than anyone forecast. While the party's share of the vote was almost identical to 92, at just under 5%, its pre-election alliance cost it dearly in terms of Fine Gael transfers, and it paid the price, losing more than half of its dull seats. The party dropped from 10 seats to 4, and its future is now in doubt. The election pact with Fianna Fáil was decisive in saving the PDCs of Liz O'Donnell and Dublin South, Party leader Mary Harney struggled to hold on in Dublin South West, while veterans Des O'Malley and Bobby Malloy also came close to losing. 
A contributory factor to the party's poor performance was undoubtedly bad election strategy. Its pact with Fianna Fáil cut it off from many potential middle-class voters and matters were not helped when sloppily drafted policies allowed the PDs to be pilloried as wanting to slash the numbers employed in the public service and cut social welfare payments to single mothers. Unquote. So the PDs have this really... It's a bad election for them. They get this stuff badly wrong. First of all, they should never have been in this strategy with Fianna Fáil. It couldn't benefit them and they were more right-wing. And what they also fell into a trap of here at this point was misreading what that that 40% vote that Fianna Fáil got contains still a number of people who were in Fianna Fáil and believed Fianna Fáil was centre uh, to slightly left um, and still didn't like the PDs and thought the PDs were right wing. Uh, Fine Gael had always had a fairly, you know, at one time the PDs looked like threatened Fine Gael on the right because it was going to eat into what was a traditional Fine Gael vote. They've now found in this election that there's a certain amount of Fianna Fáil vote that isn't interested in the PDs. Uh, and anyway, Fianna Fáil's too big. It'll always have a candidate in there soaking up the, the transfers. And on top of that, they're now not going to get any of those Fine Gael transfers. So the lack of Fine Gael transfers, which was a traditional base that might be interested in some of those right-wing policies, wasn't going to be there. Um, along with them throwing out policies that's just too easy to brand as, oh, their own caring party and, you know, look, they're, they're going to do all kinds of damage to ordinary people. Um, that kind of stuff impacts them. Now, on the other hand, uh, Fine Gael... Um, Fine Gael was, 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 you know, they were going into this leading this. Now, they do have what they would try to present as a reasonable election. And again, the acrimony, the great posters of a partnership that works. In the aftermath of the election, you're not going to see too much of that because Fine Gael kind of blame Labour for mucking up here uh, and not getting them back. Um, uh, and it says... Um, Quote, again from Stephen Collins, quote, Fine Gael under John Bruton waged a confident of unspectacular campaign and the party pushed its vote up from 24.5% to 27.9%. Like Fianna Fáil, it had won a significant seat bonus because of transfers and if it had not made silly mistakes like losing solitary seats in Donegal North East and Dublin North West, it would have been in an even healthier position. The Fine Gael vote had been in serious decline and while the 1997 result was still at the lower end of its historical average, it marked the reversal of a 15-year downward trend. The party was saved from irrelevance through being enabled to take power without an election after the extraordinary circumstances of 94, and by the very competent performance by party leader John Bruton as Taoiseach. The irony of the 97 result was that Bruton and Fine Gael lost power because of the very poor performance of Labour, but that particular cloud had a substantial silver lining. Labour's spectacular success of 1992 threatened the future of Fine Gael as a serious political force because Dick Spring and his colleagues came close to taking over as a second party in the state. The Labour collapse and the steady improvement in Fine Gael's fortunes in 97 has restored its position as the leader of any future non-Fianna Fáil government. Fine Gael can now look forward to surviving as a major political force into the next century, something which looked very doubtful after the disastrous presidential election of 1990 and general election of 92, unquote. It was, it was one of these kind of situations for Fine Gael where Again, a little bit of luck. It gets them back. Now, 
it gets them at least up a couple of percent and that's a, a big help for them that okay our vote's gone back up because it had been declining continually and the problem for Fine Gael, though here is that it, it, they, they, they don't notice the warnings here because again their vote long term is in decline they're getting a seat bonus and the transfers here as well they get the they pick up a lot of transfers from from the the other party's candidates again ill advised the others maybe to be so close although it was harder on that side because they didn't have a lot of options but it allows finagail to kind of present themselves as the ultimate non fianafoal government now there is that argument there that that you know shook did finagail you know could could they have they won their seats back they they took back seats and they got that seat bonus but it was because votes were fragmenting and they were moving all over the place rather than a healthy sign for them uh politically but on the other hand then you had to look at they certainly blamed that labor did not do their part in winning the election so what happened to labor well uh, touch with, 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 with Stephen Collins uh, again on this. Uh, it says, quote, While the internal transfers were poor within all parties, Labour's were the worst of all. Although it did not matter in most constituencies where there was just one Labour candidate, the poor internal transfers cost long-serving Wicklow TD Liam Kavanagh his seat. He got just 36.6% transfers from the second Labour candidate, Tim Collins. If it had even reached the very poor national Labour average of 50%, Kavanaugh would have beaten Mildred Fox for the last seat. Unquote. So first thing you're noticing there is the fact that the, the Labour Party has struggled. Um, and, and it's seen as, as their collapse that has cost the government uh, re-election. So what was it? What was in that, this Labour collapse? First of all, the fact, a couple of things here that, that need to be noted. The collapse in their internal transfers in the party. And while, again, that doesn't mean that a lot of seats wouldn't have been saved, apart from that, that one example there. But what it does point to is a Labour Party vote that was dispersing all over the place. It wasn't necessarily feeling a strong Labour uh, element to its vote. It had got dispersed over the years in government, and that will happen. The spring tide of ninety two had come suddenly um and because it came suddenly, it was always likely to go out uh, just as suddenly. But they thought they could retain a little bit more of it. Why didn't they? They didn't because perception was that it moved on. People in the early 90s, I believe this was part of a great change. By 97, people are thinking, we're confident, strong, decent economy. We're not going to have revolutionary change and none of these parties are going to do it. But you know what? We like some of just, just you know, get out of, of the, the same old way of doing business. And Labour were just, there was something a little bit early 90s about them. They were just kind of going out of fashion, to be honest. Um, they were also perceived, yes, decisions they'd taken in governments, being in with Fianna Fáil had damage to some voters, being in with Fine Gael had done damage to other voters, being in what might be seen as right-wing, left-wing, failing to change policies, things they've implemented, tough decisions... When you've come in with a strong ideological base, and many of those who have voted for Labour have strong ideological views, you're always forced to compromise in government, and those compromises force Labour. Now, one thing I'm going to say um, that I don't buy into is that Labour were being punished in 97 for going into government with Fianna Fáil in 92. And, and I don't think that bears any 
uh, I, I don't think the electorate ever were thinking like that with Labour. Labour were going to get punished anywhere because, number one, if that was the case, you would be at least saying, well, they should get some benefit for the fact that they got out from government with Fianna Fáil. And what that narrative suggests is that the public sat down and decided we're so annoyed with Labour for going into government with Fianna Fáil that we're going to punish them by putting Fianna Fáil back in government. Um, wh- who would think like that? You know, it, it's a nonsense kind of idea because it suggests that Labour were punished because they went in with Fianna Fáil and the form of punishment was that people then voted for Fianna Fáil. Um, that wasn't the case. People weren't that upset uh, in the general populace, in my view, or not. They were upset with the policy decisions that some were taken and what many people didn't believe that Labour had performed in government, which is maybe a harsh judgment, but then it's Labour's own fault in 92 for not dealing with them. One thing the Labour Party has always struggled with, in my view, in these things is they don't manage expectations. They don't manage to tell people, look, this is what's feasible. They tend when the head of steam gets up to believe they can do all kinds of things and everything will be wonderful. And, you know, this is going to be all change and people buy into it and then they go, oh, hold on, it's not all that different. If you don't manage expectations, you're going to take a hiding in government. That's just it. And that's what happened to Labour Party. It's a plain vanilla hiding for being in government and not changing the world. Uh, and that's just it. Now, they were looking across Finnegale just aren't exciting. It was it was a dour campaign for them. Fianna Fáil were much more professional. They were out there. And even though there's clearly doubts among the public because they're not given a lot of first preferences, they just think Fianna Fáil are more reasonable than the, the second and third preferences. Uh, and the Fianna Fáil are managing to create that image. Whereas uh, the rainbow is looking a bit boring. And, and it, was, you know, it was, wasn't a great exciting campaign of policy or anything else. It was a little bit boring. Um, and there was nothing new in it. I mean, they were getting into details about tax policies and all. But undoubtedly, that media piece too does, I think, you know, play into it. You know, the idea of its payback time. Whether or not you think that influenced voters, it was being said because there was a mood there of, yeah, this rainbow coalition hasn't given us everything we deserved. And the voters wanted, they wanted more tax cuts. They wanted change. And this is the period you're going to start coming into work. There are increased demands of government to repay people um equally though you know look there was another party in there there was democratic left and, and as stephen collins says about that he says quote democratic left also performed badly and the party ended up with just four tds the same number as 1992 but a loss of two in its strength going into the election the two democratic left deputies who made us to the dole against all odds in by-elections eric byrne and kathleen lynch both lost their seats unquote and again here, that's one thing again that's missed. Democratic left never went in with Fianna Fáil. They weren't in government. They only went in with Labour and, and Fianna Gael. And yet Democratic left take a bit of a kick in here. And the two the, the TDs that allowed them to take the, uh, go into that government by winning those seats in the by-elections are chucked out the next general election. Uh, and why aren't Democratic left getting more response for, for their part? Because, again, people just don't see that they made the impact in government that their vote base expected they were going to make when they voted them in the first time round. That's the problem. Now, you can't go around and say, well, Democratic left were just, you know, collateral and really the people didn't want Fianna Fáil. The people voted in a system that was going to end up being Fianna Fáil in here. Uh, 
although not in a ringing endorsement by any stretch for Fianna Fáil here, it was an indecisive result. But again, Democratic left take a hit. That just makes it that this, this, this government wasn't working from the people's point of view. It never captured their imagination. And again, similar to so many Fine Gael governments that we've talked about in this podcast, they just seem to lack the ability of getting people to love them in a way that Fianna Fáil and certain times, not all the time, but at certain times, seem to get this affinity, this love from people, this idea that, yes, well, they are good and we, we you know, they really tried their best. There's a charisma or personal appeal that seems to come with Fianna Fáil over this period that just wasn't there with Fianna Fáil. People never seem to actually take them to their heart and say, they go, this sense of, you should be rewarding us, but you're not. It creates this tension always, it seems to be, between the public and Fine Gael. But there were other parties too, and there are other things that are worth noting in, in this election that happened. For instance, um, uh, the Green Party, and again, let Stephen Collins pick up his analysis here of this. The Greens doubled their number of seats from one to two, but the big breakthrough for the party uh, with the last European election result appealed to Herald did not materialise. In the 1994 European elections, the party won two seats out of 15, while in the general election, the score was two out of 166. Nonetheless, this is the third doll in succession with green representation and the party looks set like to being around for a while, unquote. This was important for the Greens. And let's again put this in, in, in some perspective. They, they'd got one seat um, before and they're almost seen as a little bit of a joke uh, at the early 90s. It's like, oh, God, who's electing the Greens? You know, ah, tree huggers and all that kind of thing. Environmental issues weren't still to the fore. But you can see that again, they, they do good in the European elections. And then they begin to think this could be the breakthrough in 97. It's not the breakthrough. Um, but it is something that gives them an extra seat. And you are again seeing that multi-party thing now begin to grow because... The Greens now at least feel, well, we have an opportunity to grow. Um, and because of that opportunity, it is a positive sign. It's the multi-party thing. It's beginning to change. All of this has been happening since 87. You're getting more parties, more options, more opinions. Along with these independents who have now come into it, Mildred Fox, Jackie Healy Ray, they're now... It, the people want choice. They're, 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 it's a break up in the system. The old ways of keeping it tight and having steady government is clearly going to be gone here. Another interesting party, of course, in this is um, what happens for, for Sinn Féin and, and these, these independents. Uh, again, let Stephen Collins pick this up. Quote, Sinn Féin also made a breakthrough in 97. For the first time since 1957, a candidate standing for the party won a seat. In 1981, four H-block candidates were elected, but they did not stand as official Sinn Féin candidates. Even more significantly, the winning Sinn Féin TD, Kevin O'Quailon, who topped the poll in Cavan Monaghan, took his seat in the Dáil. It was the first time in the history of the state that the party formally recognised the Dáil. Another small party, the Socialist Party, also won a seat with Joe Higgins getting elected in Dublin West and building on the support he won in the 1996 by-election. Small party candidates and independents of various hues won a total of 10 Dáil seats and ended up with a balance of power in the Dáil. Three of the Fianna Fáil-leaning independents, Jackie Healy Ray, Mildred Fox and Harry Blaney, did a deal with Fianna Fáil and effectively became the third party in government." Unquote. Now, this is one of these situations where <clears throat> you begin to see politics changing because 
smaller parties there you can see the growth in it there you can see they're picking up seats and it wasn't particularly seen as massive but it does mean that what the electorate effectively have done is rejected they, they haven't given Fianna Fáil and the PDs the mandate they haven't given them elected them in as one alternative and they certainly have given uh, even a more ringing rejection of the rainbow and this is this hung doll so you get this sense that now you have to form a government. And how are you going to form out of this? Neither option has been accepted. But clearly Fianna Fáil and the PDs are almost there. And they have a couple of these Fianna Fáil gene pool um, that comes out. People who were in Fianna Fáil but, you know, have left. People like Jackie Healy Ray, uh, Harry Blaney um, the, the, and Mildred Fox uh, as a, a, an independent leaning that way too. And Bertie Hearn's this negotiator and he's the conciliator and he's the guy everybody thinks as, you know, he's kind of like, you know, everybody's second favourite politician. Oh, yeah, well, I'd like to support this party, but Bertie is all right. And that's the image he had at the time, that Bertie was OK. Even if you didn't like Fianna Fáil, you could like Bertie. Bertie was all right. Bertie seems like a nice guy. Um, And everybody wanted, and this was Bertie Hearn's first election as leader. He hasn't got that ringing endorsement, but he's got this sense that everybody still doesn't want to pick on him because they kind of like him. Um, and, and they kind of say, OK, we're not going to give out. He's going to be the Taoiseach. He manages to bring together those independents to support this. Um, and, and he does that in the backdrop, as I say, of that media stuff. A lot of parties, from Fine Gael in particular, very annoyed about the fact that the media has backed Bertie to the way it did. But equally in Fianna Fáil, they were giving out about how the media was debasing politics by their way they were following and reporting on corruption in it, as if it sounded like every politician was corrupt. And the media rejects that. And Matt Cooper talked a lot about that, where he says, and, and a quote from Matt Cooper at the time, he says, quote, it is the job of the media to highlight wrongdoing where it finds it and to reflect and inform public opinion. Unfortunately, this contributed to a deterioration in relations between the body politic and the media, with the media being blamed for being disproportionately aggressive and negative in its reporting of political affairs. It was a charge the media rejected, pointing out that it was merely reporting and commenting upon the actions of some of those elected by the people to govern us. That is the media's job, and if it is doing it properly, then it is inevitable that there will be tension with those who rule the country. If it were not the case, that would be worrying. It does not mean that the media wants to demean politics and those who practice it. Far from it, it wants to contribute to the maintenance of high standards on behalf of us all. Unquote. And you sense from that there that, that there was that tension beginning to go into it. You know, will you back this party or they back that party? That one side gets annoyed. Then the other party is annoyed at how you're reporting these tribunals and you're making us sound like we're always corrupt and everyone's corrupt and you're not saying how many of us good ones there are. Media is always getting attacked by somebody uh, as well. Same way as they're always attacking. That's just the nature of it. But there are many breakthroughs that 97 gives us and and they're important because you now have an election that has 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 a couple of really important points i think that to take out of 97 uh, as bertie hearn comes to power with this new coalition government um and there are a couple of really key things out of it first of all it's the change of fiona falls opinion on things gone very much lack of evidence in this podcast of what you've heard in previous ones of Fianna Fáil the overall majority all of that kind of talk Fianna Fáil is now the party 
of friendship. It's the party that's reaching out to others and saying, well, you don't need to hate us. We can do business with anybody. It's the party that's losing a lot of what used to identify it in the past as its rigid, strong approach to how it saw itself whether you agree with it or not, but it saw itself as a guardian of all things Irish and strong and good and principled and all of that in its own view. But it loses that and begins to say, ah, look, we're all okay and none of us are bad. And you can always get because it wants preference votes. And that's trying to, in the short term, address what is a long term decline in the party's vote. It's not able to, to organise the level it once was. Um, you, you do see in 97 that shift in it. The second thing that's important around 97 is the change Fianna Fáil brings, bringing in all of the actual professionals, professionals in the true sense of the word and that they're paid to do the job. They come in, they begin to change how politics is run for political parties ever more after that in Ireland. It's, it is a very uh, modern election uh, from that point of view. Then you see the change in and this evolving change we've seen over a number of podcasts away from what was in the 70s to early 80s, politics dominated by simple choices of a coalition or a possible Fianna Fáil overall majority or, you know, Fianna Fáil in coalition even in the late 80s. But we're now from 87, we've been on this journey of the public deciding they want more parties, they want more options. And, and that's fragmenting politics it's giving a lot more options, but it's also fragmenting. It's making government a lot more difficult. The simple choices are not there. And now people coming into politics can choose from a range of parties to be involved with. But they're they're getting involved at, at, at different levels, different times. And, and the public are deciding they want different individuals, independents and small parties much more influential now than they've ever been in the past. And that's a real mark in 97. And because of the result, it means that independents hold a balance of power and are going to be perceived from there on in to actually have a real role to pay to play in government because, well, independents can get you what you want in your constituency because they might be needed. And if they are, the idea of holding a country to ransom as, as comes out of it uh, from this because of the deals they, they, they strike... Whether or not that's fair is a whole other matter um, because a lot of what they do, there's some very good policy from, from independence, but that's a perception and that's, it, it is going to change here. You have the difficulties of other small parties too. As more of these parties grow, some of them, the PDs who were, the, let's say, the mole breakers uh, coming into it, they've just had another bad election and they're going to try address that in the years ahead, but they don't address it properly and it points to the one critical weakness of progressive democrats again in this unexpected bad election they don't have an organization they are the epitome of a political party rather than a movement they don't have a real functioning organization and it's crippling them and they're not able to address that they're not getting ahead of that problem and it's going to we're going to see that tacked on in further elections but they're striking a balance here between their own survival and the individual seats they're winning and how they're going to evolve at this trying to be radical on policy and, and offer a different policy alternative. The major parties still being in some form of long-term decline, even through all the glory of coming back for Fianna Fáil in 97 and all the pizzazz and razzmatazz that will go with that, 
they're struggling. They're struggling in, in terms of their vote. But they now have a way of covering that up because now it's about getting those preference votes. And therefore, 97 changes a lot of things. It has a very different feel from 92. It has a very different feel in that it's seen that evolution go of, of these smaller parties. But at the same time, you now have a much more fluid system. And, and it doesn't seem to be as adversarial as it once was. You now have them working across different parties, different times. You now have a sense anybody could work with anybody. Um, but what really is starting up here is a race for who's going to be the parties of the future. Uh, because you're seeing a lot of them beginning to shape up. And interestingly, we see Sinn Féin take that first TD in. And, and it's an interesting one from a Sinn Féin perspective because this is, over the previous years, they have had Section 31 lifted, which was a ban on their, their voice being heard. It used to have to be voiced by an actor and all this kind of thing. The peace process, and, and in particular their early years of that with Albert Reynolds in that has, has the Labour Fianna Fáil government and Section 31 being lifted and all that, brought Sinn Féin in very much from the cold. Um, now, John Bruton is at pains, well, he's Taoiseach, to continually point out, because he's principled on this and he believes it passionately, the IRA, he is very dubious about them and he doesn't want them anywhere near it. So he has taken a firm line with them in that. And others on the Fianna Fáil side are going to be more, always a little bit more understanding of the mentality, the nationalist mentality uh, in there. And you see Sinn Féin make this breakthrough. They get a TD in and then they do what seemed to be unthinkable only a short few years before. They're going to take their seat in the doll and they're going to recognise the doll. That's a big move. It's a big shift. And what people aren't looking at here is, is at the time is, oh, that's a surprise, Sinn Féin of a TD. And they're all intrigued as to how it might work. But nobody's particularly thinking, thinking, yes, Sinn Féin probably could grow a little bit here, but no one sees that in 97 as being a particular threat. Indeed, if anything, within Fianna Fáil, they quite like Sinn Féin because they've been the ones who have brought Sinn Féin in from the cold early on in this. If Sinn Féin have taken this seat, it is largely down to Fianna Fáil's willingness to reach out to Sinn Féin, to accept them and to say to people, look, Sinn Féin are a normal political party as far as we're concerned. And Fianna Fáil have played a huge role in, in that seat coming uh, to Sinn Féin because Fianna Fáil are the party, whereas Bruton has been out there very much trying to say, hold on, we don't let this happen, you can't let these guys in. It's Fianna Fáil that have been the ones that are kind of going, you know what, it was a conflict situation. It's always complex. And Fianna Fáil have a Republican ethos that seems more in tune with where Sinn Féin are going for. They like to see themselves both as these strong Irish parties. And indeed, some in Fianna Fáil are thinking it might be no bad thing if Sinn Féin grew because they might be a natural partner there for Fianna Fáil in the future, considering that they've had their troubles with the PDs, they've had their troubles with uh, Labour, you know, maybe, maybe Sinn Féin one point could be, they're, 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 they're interesting. Certainly when it comes to their position on Northern Ireland, that's where mostly Fianna Fáil are wedging in behind with Sinn Féin and, and quite happy to side up there. And that's interesting because, of course, that is going to develop and that relationship is going to develop over the years, largely because Sinn Féin are not going to turn out to be what Fianna Fáil expect and Sinn Féin are going to be the, as Fianna Fáil will perceive them, the party that bites the hand that feeds. 
uh, and for reaching out and helping them along and being friendly with them, they're going to discover Sinn Féin are going to come in and start saying Féin Fáil de Lenda Est uh, and that's not going to be appreciated uh, by Féin Fáil over the years. But anyway, that's where we, we get ahead of ourselves. That's where 97 leaves us in a, in a very different uh, election and a government that Party Hearn puts together and comes back in with a very different mood uh, by that by that stage um, and that is indeed where, where we will step out and leave the 97 election so that's it for another week um, and thank you again for listening 97 was a fascinating one it's one that I think many people will will recall and remember uh, as I say first of all became a series of summer elections um, but it did change a lot uh, as regards how politics is run in this country and we're getting in now to seeing the modern um, landscape we know beginning to come into view next week we are going to cover um one election that lives long in in memory uh, and that will be 2002 uh, because after this government and we look in ireland is going to start experiencing the benefits of having sorted out its economy um in in the 80s and that's going to result in a huge economic boom like nothing ever seen before um and of course, an election in the teeth of that brings many different questions and challenges. Um, and the evolution of Bertie Ahern as a political figure over the next decade is going to be absolutely the dominating uh, agenda piece of that. He's going to be astride every major issue and decision. And of course, he has now centralised pretty much anything that happens in Fianna Fáil happens the way Bertie wants it to happen. He does it in a far different style to Hahi, but nonetheless, he has a chokehold on the party for the next while. That's quite interesting. I thank you for all for listening. Uh, once again, I want to thank uh, my colleagues at Car Communications. Um, for the editions uh, uh, of books and access with the, the Car Communications Library, even at a distance when we're not there and getting getting uh, pieces from books where I need them or who has them. Uh, also want to thank any of you who have interacted on Twitter and uh, given your thoughts on this, which is, is uh, a great help, uh, as always. And if you have listened and enjoyed this, please do give us a shout out at Johnny Fallon at, at J-O-N-N-Y-F-A-L-L-O-N those retweets and and you giving the the podcast a plug is a major help in always boosting our our listener numbers so if you like it please do share it and and let people know it's it's a a great help to get us keep this going we'll be back next week as i say to look at 2002 and uh, we'll keep this we'll keep keep going throughout the the recordings as we move into we've quite a few yet to go um but thank you all for listening and for taking the time out of uh, your schedules so stay safe out there and we'll see you next week